Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. We talk labour learning, the Duchess and decolonising, homes fit to study and Indie NP on HE. It's all coming up. Having rented myself this week for the first time in decades, you know, I felt the power of the landlord and the agent just to get me in, take quite a lot of money off me and face the music afterwards. And you find out about the hidden defects only once you've moved in and try to have a, a shower. Um, students are in... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm your host, Rachel Firth, and here to walk across the tundra of higher education policy. As usual, we have three excellent guests. In Chiswick, we have Mary Koenig-Cook, Serial Non-Exec Director. Mary, would you give us your highlight of the week, please? Okay, my highlight of the week was having a hot shower. I'm feeling the pain for students about rental accommodation. I've been moving house this week and have taken a rental for a couple of months. Uh, moved in, no hot water or heating, kitchen cupboards rotting off their hinges and a really scary live worm in the loo. So nice <laughs> and I'm not even at the student end of the market. In York we have Pete Quinn, HE consultant and guest lecturer at Education University of Hong Kong. Pete, your highlight of the week please. Uh, well it's, it's been a while since I've been able to do reading at the local school so I read with um, a few of the kids and so that's kind of the highlight of my week and then that continued as I popped into York City Centre where the Viking Festival uh, is taking place so I queued up for my coffee in the morning with a number of vikings in full regalia axes shields and all so you know interested they all like lattes by the way apparently that was a thing in viking times (laughs) (laughs) and in london we have wonky's editor-in-chief mark leach mark what is your moment of the week please i think it has to be watching the independent group uh kind of announce itself and and those labor mps break away from labor um for anyone who follows politics so closely i mean this is you know this is just a a monumental moment in in british politics um i mean it could all come to nothing but it could be the moment we'll look back on and and say kind of this is this is the start of the big realignment that everyone's been talking about so for a political junkie this was um this was an extraordinary sight uh we start this week with the labor party showing a bit more of its education policy so mark what do you make of this so we, we've had um, we've had this kind of in two batches of, of last week. Um, uh, on Saturday, Angela Rayner, the Shadow Education Secretary, gave a speech to the UCU conference um, that they were running in London, um, and she set out a bit more of her thinking. So, so what we knew before was. Um, they're going to abolish tuition fees and, and bring back grants. And that was repeated um, again last week. But but she, she fleshed out a little bit more uh, thinking about um, marketization in particular um, and uh, gave quite a, quite a strong attack against RFS, which she blames for um, the competition in, in the sector. Um, and that was interesting because I, th- I think it just gave us a kind of flavor, uh, which I'll come back to. And then the, the second... Um, the second thing that happened was, was Gordon Marsden, the shadow HE minister, 
uh, announced a kind of anti-orga review of uh, of adult education, um, which includes lots of luminaries uh, from the worlds of uh, education skills, including a uh, friend of the show, Andy Westwood, uh, who's advising it as he's advised pretty much every um, skills review now for uh, the last couple of decades, which is, is good to see. So that'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. I want to talk, though, just a bit about the the Rainer stuff that we got from uh, from the weekend. And so I used, I used to be a Labour advisor. Um, I worked for Shabana Mahmood, who was a shadow universities minister uh, when Ed Miliband was leader. And so I've got direct experience of trying to make opposition policy uh, for Labour uh, on higher education. So that was that was essentially my job for a couple of years. I don't think it's, a, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that UCU is geared up essentially to write these policies for the Labour Party. And not many people know this, but my job kind of existed because of this very reason. The UCU General Secretary came to Shabana when she got given the, the Shadow Universities brief and said, it's all fine. Um, essentially, we'll run your policy operation. Here are the lines about casualization, about pay ratios, about marketization in, in the sector. Um, you don't, you know, you don't need to worry because we'll take care of kind of the policy end. And Shabana being Shabana and sort of independent spirited person thought, well, who is this person? Why should I take their advice? And certainly not going to kind of outsource my thinking to uh, to the trade union. So, uh, and, and then pretty much at the same time, um, a notable vice chancellor came and pretty much offered the same thing. Um, and, she, and 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 Shabana thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be captured either by um, by the trade union or, or the sector in this way. Um, and so she started raising money to pay for the role, which was mine in the end, uh, to, to advise her on, pol- on policy. I don't think it should be underestimated just the fact that how little resources there are in opposition. Angela Rayner has, um, you know, some people that run her office that deal with constituents and whatnot. And, and the Central Party does provide for a bit of political support, um, but it's incredibly minimal and they don't have a lot of expert expertise on hand. Um, and I was just struck by this because the lines that she was giving at the weekend at the at the UCU uh, conference were were literally UCU lines down you know literally down the line. I mean, from from pay ratios to uh, to marketization, it's, it looked like a UCU press release, and that's fine because I think there's obviously you know a political alignment between Rayner and, and where UCU are, uh, and it obviously plays to the, the kind of academic gallery um, quite nicely. Um, but I just wanted to kind of share that anecdote about how kind of policy. <laughs> comes about because I, I think it's I think it's a little understood. Mary, if I may, what did you actually make of these uh, uh, suggestions of what Angela was saying? Um, well, the one that, that caught my eye was um, the inclusion of a look at credit accumulation and transfer in the Lifelong Learning Commission. I, I think that one's a bit like PQA. It's one of those ideas that everyone knows makes huge sense, but somehow it's just never happened. Um, I was actually involved in trying to implement a credit system in the National Qualifications Framework. That was, by the way, to implement Charles Clark's skills white paper in, I think, 2003, probably before you were all born. Um, and we did it and in the teeth of opposition from awarding bodies. Um, but it didn't really work. <clears throat> didn't work for learners because there were no real incentives for providers to embrace it. And in fact, it was killed off by Ofqual a couple of years ago. I think in higher education, it's even harder because despite the FHEQ and the QAA and everything, the perception and perhaps even the reality is that credits from one university, think uh, Russell Group, are worth more than credits from another, think post-92s. But, you know, the real problem here is that part-time and mature learners, almost by definition, they're messy learners and they need to be able to hop on and hop off. You know, their lives change, they have children, they move jobs, they move house, etc. So, 
So I say good luck to Andy and the Commission. If they can crack uh, credit accumulation and transfer, maybe they should start on PQA next. Yeah, one one of my first roles in the sector was back in the time you described, Mary, where um, Mm. I was involved in um, receiving credit from particular students coming into Oxford. Uh, and wanting to do to you know to 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 a pellet or or bring it yeah. in so that then they could build on it um, and often they would go off to the open university or to to other modular institutions and do that so it it, it did have um a positive impact that I saw on a number of people but quite agree it's a real shame that um it never took off and um yeah. it, you no, know no, not in any scale at no all. no it was so it's, it was very niche yeah it's one of the hardy perennials and i mean it's it's kind of a gift really when you're in opposition because um you know on the face of it doesn't cost anything it also kind of speaks against the the marketization agenda which is part part of this um and and also there's the the kind of lifelong learning um the lifelong learning angle um but but whether or not you want to turn it into an actionable policy depends on um your attitude to to policy making in he and and the autonomy of of universities um it would be a really interesting uh but direct challenge to, to university autonomy to implement a full proper credit transfer system um and that's kind of the the thing that always goes unsaid okie dokie let's see who's been blogging for us this week uh, hi, my name is Stuart Johnson. I'm director of the Careers Service at the University of Bristol, uh, and I've got an article this week on Wonky about um, a change to the employment metric that um, the OFS uh, released quietly in October. Uh, the reason it's significant is because of the TEF independent review, uh, which is currently uh, ongoing and will close on the 1st of March. Uh, and a particular change is the change to what was called the highly skilled and further study metric and is now called the highly skilled and higher study metric. And that small change means that professional qualifications, uh, which aren't higher than the study the student was doing previously, are counted as negative in the test, the teaching excellence and student outcomes framework. So if you have a, uh, a law student going on to do a legal practice course or a professional training course, or perhaps a history student doing a graduate diploma in law, uh, and they go on to that uh, within your university or on someone else's, it will all be negative in the test. And you might like to raise that in the independent review. Hello, I'm Richard Brabner, director of the UPP Foundation. My piece for Wonky this week proposed the establishment of what we call University Community Foundations, one of the recommendations to come out of the UPP Foundation's Civic University Commission report. Three of the challenges to universities' civic missions, which the Commission uncovered over the course of the last year, are, in a nutshell, how do we fund this? How do we ensure there is a strategy and action based on the real needs of the local community? And how do we ensure it has an impact? I argue that an independent university community foundation, a completely new type of charity inspired by both the corporate and community foundation movements, would play a part in overcoming these challenges through the dual benefit of being integrated into the community or having the capacity of the university behind it. Do check out the article and I'd be delighted to hear or read your thoughts. Right, decolonising university curricula has been put back on the agenda after Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, visited the City University in London on one of her first outings as patron of the Association of Commonwealth Universities, or ACU as they're known. Commenting on the diversity within the curriculum, she said, just open up that conversation so we are talking about it as opposed to continuing with that daily rote. Sometimes the approach can be really antiquated and it needs an update. So Mary, what was your take on this? Oh, well, this is the uh, Duchess of Chiswick here. Um, and uh, I've looked at this decolonizing the curriculum, and it seems to be a term that's used collectively to talk about, I think, three different strands as far as I can make out. So one is the diversity in the curriculum. 
including post-colonial thinking and writing. The second is about the diversity or otherwise of the professoriate and other academics in universities. And the third is about the attainment gap for BME students. <clears throat> and these, of course, are interconnected issues, but I think my starter would be that it would be great if we could find a better headline term. And I think it's really just about diversity and equality in all mm, these areas. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Duchess of Sussex was OMGing about the lack of diversity in academic staff, quite, quite rightly. Um, uh, a year or two ago, Cambridge students request to diversify the writers and thinkers for their English curriculum actually met with a very sympathetic response from academics only to be taken up in the right-wing press as a campaign to banish dead white men. Um, and I just wonder how far Cambridge have got with decolonizing the English curriculum. <laughs> it's, it's one of the problems in this country is how painfully slow the process of changing the curriculum on any course in any university is. Um, that's maybe why we have so many courses that employers say are out of date with current knowledge, but that's for another day. Um, then we had uh, Professor Doug Stokes from Exeter uh, writing in The Spectator. I don't know if any of you read it. So he bets that what he calls this navel-gazing is not happening in China or Russia to critique the sins of Eastern European colonization or China's imperialism in large parts of Africa. Um, and he argues that the last thing our universities need are to have male, pale and stale voices sidelined. Now, uh, are you keeping up? No, me neither. Um, so uh, we need to have more, of course, more female and ethnic minority academics in our universities. And we do need to tackle the uh, the BAME attainment gap. Um, I think we need more black female ethnic minority thinkers underpinning the curriculum in HE. Actually, elsewhere too, I took a look at the um, the English literature GCSE curriculum. And in the modern text choices, they've only got two writers out of 11 who are female and only one from a BME background. And, and even the choices for the 19th century novel list did better than that with, with three women out of choice of seven authors. So maybe this goes further than higher education. But anyway, my start for 10 is, couldn't we just have a more sensible conversation about the issue if it weren't tagged as decolonizing, uh, decolonization? Um, and I say three cheers for more diversity of writers and thinkers in the curriculum. And of course, I speak as a female pale and stale voice. I think this issue is um, a kind of classic... It's a classic cultural war and classic um, kind of intergenerational war um, issue that likes to get picked up, particularly by, by the right wing press. Um, I think you're right that the kind of the, the way it's described, the decolonizing, um, it, it probably doesn't capture this agenda sufficiently. But, but every time this comes up, it just highlights the kind of the massive gap there is between um, commentators and policymakers and politicians um, and, and kind of the sensibilities of a generation coming through the education system at the moment and the kind of sneering that goes on about young people who have the temerity to um, question their curriculum, what they're being taught and, and how, it, you know, how, uh, how diverse it is or how it represents them. Um, and it's it's very uncomfortable making every time every time that happens because as i say it kind of exposes that um exposes that gap i think you know good on the duchess of sussex for uh for, for bringing it up um but i think yeah i agree with mary that we need to reframe it um if it's actually going to start getting any further than um kind of dog whistle 
headline generation. Yeah, so my take on this is is a, a more of a kind of practical hands-on recent pieces of work I've been doing take, and um, one with the conservatoires in London uh, and around the country who have se- taken this very seriously. And in the art sector, there's been quite a lot of publicity about um, including actors um, who have the particular characteristics they're portraying. So there was a an excellent example of this in Bristol at the Old Vic Theatre where the Elephant Man was played by someone with a disability. Um, and, and that was seen to be a real step forward. And I think people took up, uh, sat up and took notice. But as well uh, with University of Durham, where I was recently, there was a huge push there. And the, the word decolonization was very helpfully not used. What they were making the point was that they've got a hugely diverse international and more local students coming to the university, and they need more familiarity with the content. Um, so, so they were making um, some real steps forward in, in just discussing it. So, yes, um, it gets taken up by um, our friends in the in the right wing press, um, you know, chuntering on um, and, and then getting back to their to their kind of way of life. But um, and in terms of, of whether it's been discussed in China and Japan, I mean, certainly the work I've been doing um, over in Hong Kong, there's been quite a lot of concern that um, some of the, the, the historical context of teaching in Hong Kong schools, for example, is, is, is being overtaken by the wider China um, element. And there's elements of the Japanese history there, which is, is, is being missed off the curriculum. So I think there may be some concerns over that. But I think um, it's, again, a case of the younger people coming through um, and a more diverse student body coming through who are quite rightly pointing out, there's no one like me in this curriculum. How can I study it? Uh, and I don't think that's an unfair uh, comment at all. I should also point out that um, Andrea Rayner in her comments uh, earlier this week that we were talking about, she, she associated herself with the with this agenda and said that um, said that universities need to need to look at the issue as well. So um, it would be interesting um, if if kind of more meat was on was put on the bones in terms of the the party's policy on that. If they were actually going to start talking about what universities teach, uh, would would be an interesting departure. Um, if if they were um, put in government, you know, I, I think that. There's long been kind of convention that um, governments don't re- don't don't interfere with that or, or kind of um, university admissions, but um, mm. <laughs> though, though they did, uh, the Department for Education did um, publish uh, some guidance in 2017 in January, um, specifically around implementing the Equality Act uh, for disabled students, ah, and yes, creating yes. an inclusive teaching and learning environment, and extending that. You could quite easily see why you might want to diversify the curriculum, uh, diversify assessment. So I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you there, Mark. I'm just um, making the point that it's already in in the the system for this work to happen, um, and it has to be done authentically as well. So if you if you are tokenistic about this, um, then it's it's clearly not going to work because I think students and learners and academics want to teach things that that they feel um, you know something about rather than that they're being forced to or feel feel that they need to kind of pander to some political correctness gone mad kind of thing. But I don't think it is that. I think it's just a sensible evolution of the curriculum. Uh, There's very few that can stay still and continue to be relevant. Now, every week this season on the podcast, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here is part seven of The Hidden History of HE. If you were to pitch up at an English university in the middle of the 19th century, 
um, and asked to see the research facilities, you would be very disappointed because there, there were none. Firstly, the universities were mostly concerned with um, non-experimental sciences, so you, you wouldn't be shown to any great laboratories. There were some laboratories the students were allowed to, to do things in. But original research was not, even in the humanities, something that they thought was important. So much so that if you go to the work of Cardinal Newman, his um, very important lectures uh, on the idea of the university, he's quite dismissive of the idea of generating uh, um, new knowledge. Uh, if the object of a university was scientific and philosophical discover discovery, I do not see why a university should have students. He's very clear that it's not any of their business. And, and certainly there are plenty of examples, and, and Oxford does very well at coming up with these examples, of why universities uh, shouldn't do research, they shouldn't do science, this isn't their business. Uh, discovery of knowledge is, is nothing much to do with them. So one of the great reformers of the University of Oxford is uh, Master of Balliol, Benjamin Jowett, um, and he's this great idea uh, that he, he reforms all sorts of things in universities, hated by some conservatives. But one of the things he's very clear on is that re you know, research is, is not the kind of thing that his university should be doing because it threatened the whole tutorial and examination system, which was making Oxford into the highest of high school for boys. So for him, it was a really bad thing. And he s came up with this idea, someone talking to him, um, research, the master exclaimed, research, he said, a mere excuse for idleness. It has never achieved and will never achieve results of the slightest value. So this is the head of Balliol, uh, very clear that, that this, is, this is not something that should happen. Clearly, there's a, an ongoing movement. There's what you get is this interaction between the new universities, places like Manchester, who start to borrow the apparatus of the research university, which is developed in the US and developed from Germany, and they work out that actually useful knowledge is A, useful to the locale, but actually is generating new things. So they do, both do a, a, what we might think of as applied, but also basic research. So you start to get a development. Um, Cambridge sets up the Cavendish Laboratory in 1874 and gets an extraordinary range of people who, who come. Nobel Prizes developed very quickly. Uh, you know, the fundamentals of the universe are understood by people at Cambridge. Uh, this idea that we should advance knowledge is, is now seen as something they sh uh, that we should get on to. Um, there is an association with um, uh, Lord Kelvin, who's at Glasgow University for an extraordinary amount of time. Uh, but this is a man who... Uh, Perfects underwater cables, who does temperature, who does all sorts of things, you know, you know, polyglot of, of thinking about what a university should be doing, discovering things. But uh, in other places, this is still seen as, as definitely a, a bad idea. And it only really um, finally gets cemented after the First World War, when the useful knowledge that universities have contributed towards the war is actually seen by both government and by society as something that is, is worth reflecting. And it certainly wins the argument finally in Oxford that you know university research is the kind of thing that they should be doing and they start to set up the major facilities that they have uh, and, it, and it really kicks on from there. Next up, the National Union of Students, NUS, have released new research on students in rental properties. Homes Fit for Study is a report based on a survey with over 2,000 students. So, Pete, will you tell us more about this research, please? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, it's um, it's a, a survey that the NUS have, have done previously, but this this time there were 2,000 respondents. Um, lots of issues came up, um, so including things about upfront costs, uh, there was a dissatisfaction with um, whether deposits were returned, um, the quality of housing that students were offered and, and had to live in. Um, and there were particular concerns about first in family and people from low incomes um, and their opportunities for housing. 
um, as, as a very familiar element to it as well in terms of December being a key date. Um, certainly in my experience uh, when I was at the University of York, December was suddenly a time when there was a ripple of anxiety through the, the undergraduate student body about who they were going to live with and where they are going to get the right houses. Um, but I thought that was often correlated to the um, local providers of private housing with five, six, seven bed properties who wanted to shift those early. So there was um, there was definitely a kind of element of, of fear mongering and, and um, fear of missing out. Um, but th- some of the comments that that um, came out of the survey, I think, were quite familiar and 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 were reasonable. There were others that were there was a, a lack of uh, rent guarantor schemes. And I did a quick unscientific poll with colleagues from um, Namoshi yesterday, and a number of universities do offer rent guarantors um, to to students in particular. So York, Stirling, Greenwich, SOAS, and Plymouth, amongst others, um, offer a rent guarantor scheme. Although it only applies to particular students, and it doesn't cover massive numbers of students, but but that is possible. And in terms of first in family, many of the bursary schemes that are offered by universities do cover accommodation costs either on campus or off campus. I think it's just a, another element as well where there's, there's sometimes confusion about why the, the large private providers who have sprung up in many university towns and cities are so attractive to students. And, and in, in some respects, I think their ease of access all provided um, close to campus without and, and a fairly high standard of accommodation is offered is is potentially why students are drifting to those um, facilities rather than renting small properties on their own. Can and should universities be responsible for private rental accommodation? Well, if um, I've realised I've introduced the topic, but also um, many of the student unions that I've ever worked with or around do have um, you know advice function and do have a lot of. Um, experience and guidance to provide students with about renting, what to do when things are going wrong, checklists about how to, to get in to properties, taking pictures around the place, you know, things that I'm sure Mary has been doing um, in, in her Chiswick dutchery. Um, <laughs> but um, so just guidance like that. But um, and also um, certainly um, NASMA is the National Association of Student Money Advisors has a presence in most universities and, and they've got some really good skills and advice which are much needed by students with the pressure being put on the citizens advice services that um, are in. So they, they can't take responsibility for those issues which we all have to face at some point as as renters of property or buyers of property etc. But um, they can certainly give advice and guidance on that so it's, I, I don't think it's the case that universities leave students to it. Um, it's just it, it, they can't always respond in a, a, as quick and timely a fashion uh, as students might wish. Yeah but they, they have to they they really have to because you know as I said having rented myself this week for the first time in decades, you know I felt the power of the landlord and the agent just to get me in, take quite a lot of money off me, and face the music afterwards. And you find out about the hidden defects only once you've moved in and try to have a, a shower. Um, students are in a much worse position than someone like me because they're desperate for housing. The landlords have a sort of captive market. Um, Students are very unlikely to make themselves homeless. And there's usually kind of uh, more demand than supply supply, or at least a balance. So they don't have many choices if they get in and find the place infested with vermin. Um, And I just think that universities should and could take a strong hand in supporting their students. Most of these uh, students, you know, school leavers, for example, just simply won't have the confidence or the knowledge or the experience to know how to assert their rights. And the landlords are just walking all over them. You know, well, I remember the same yeah. thing from when my kids were... And I don't university. disagree with you, Mary, but I think in, in, in many cases they're not as um, as exposed as, as 
you perhaps expect with um, certainly uh, I can think of, of accommodation booking um, at university 90% of the um, people doing the booking were the parents not the students so the the parents are often involved and, and maybe at a distance but but aren't always doing it on their own but there are some some good support services in universities and many universities still provide accommodation through halls or through joint ventures with with the other providers so i think it's it's less of an issue than it perhaps once was but i, yeah, I don't but dis- you can you can you can bet that the 10 percent whose parents don't yeah. help with signing the contracts yeah. are you know people who are very from disadvantaged backgrounds yeah. or estranged students the ones who who most need help yeah. and are no, most I, likely to be exploited absolutely and I, I think i think i think it has to go beyond just providing advice i don't think universities can wash their hands um if they're not able to of the issue if they're not able to provide accommodation for people that need mm. it um and they've got really sharky landlords in a local area yeah. um exploiting students with incredibly tough terms um poor standards of accommodation exactly. and, and and high prices um and and then the students who expected to come and um, learn and have a good student experience um, and and we're kind of told that you know that kind of never the train shall meet you know that's up to students to to kind of mm-hmm. learn how to, to navigate the, the difficult waters of um, rental accommodation um, and we'll provide advice about how we you know you can lodge complaints um, well, it doesn't I, seem enough it does go beyond that mark a, a number of places that i've either worked with or for they deliver workshops that do um, contract checking so once you've got your property you can bring your contract in get it checked by uh, one of the kind of NASMA advisors in the university. Um, they also help in disputes over uh, tenancies. So it's not just a case of here's a fact sheet, go off and do it. There is a there is a process. But there's also a balance between um, hand-holding and empowering, I think, as well. Definitely. And I, yeah, and definitely. I, think, that, I think that's struck by many places. But I think, it, it you know, it, I don't think the, the universities can solve the societal issue as a whole, which marries it, you know, currently sadly experiencing and which I have in the past where landlords and people who own property um, aren't always the best in customer service or providing what the um, what the listing says. But equally, students do have power to uh, to not rent from places. And I've certainly seen um, landlords getting blacklisted and not being able to let their properties because they are so poor. So that, so it's, it, it, it is, um, you know, it, it's not all black or white. And presumably the um, the council or whoever inspects for smoke alarms and carbon monoxide and those kind of safety issues um, are strapped for cash to uh, you know to really do all those inspections. But it's a real pity for students, I think. I think the other angle here is um, the auger review, uh, and I think there's there's at there's least a decent possibility that it's going to talk about um, costs of, of living at university, and um, obviously that the major one being accommodation. And it would be interesting to see if that review proposes um, more uh, either universities taking on a greater responsibility um, or some kind of, you know, state-led intervention in, in overall um, cost control, um, link, perhaps linked to maintenance of some description. So um, that's the Mark, other unknown. Mark, do you not think that's going to be more about um, the sort of hidden inflation in universities' own accommodation rents, the sort of, you know, what it costs to be in halls rather than about private landlords? It, it could be, but the two you can't really separate out the two because if um, the if, if if there's an intervention in the in the university controlled market, then that's going to have a real impact on um, on the private sector. So um, it's it, it could it could shake things up. But I mean, it's still speculation. We don't know. We don't know. But if you if you look at the last few years in many towns and cities that have universities in, you've seen huge developments going um, going up for 
primarily the student market, but many of those have also transferred into providing initial homes for um, recent graduates as well. So I think we're seeing a shift away from the days when you could just rent out your house um, and have it um, high occupancy and, and profit from it. I think there's a lot of competition and there's money to be made clearly because that's why the people behind these companies are investing in prime um, spots close to uh, campus where people can live together. Um, it's not always the case that that's happy either, um, but it, it, it does seem to be working well for, for many students. And a big focus of those private providers is community building. Um, and they're doing an awful lot of that uh, and investing in that because they realize that students will want to live there based on feeling like a community and, and, and coming together. Now it's quiz time. Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? Does the growth of an institution predict undergraduate dissatisfaction with the timeliness of academic feedback? That's the question I'm asking today, plotting 17-18 student numbers as the percentage of 14-15 student numbers on one axis, and the percentage of respondents dissatisfied, that's scoring one or two, with the speed of feedback in the 2018 NSS. Yes, but does it correlate? I think the intuitive answer would be yes, um, because an expansion of student numbers could lead to a decline in um, student-staff ratios or, or uh, any of the factors that might make it take longer for academics to provide feedback to students. So I'm going to go yes, um, negatively. I, I th- I'd like to think uh, no, and that would be because um, I think universities are beginning to get a handle on feedback as a, as a critical issue. But, um, you know, another view would be, um, could the timeliness of feedback get any worse? <laughs> so so, so, so my, my, um, my heart says yes and my head says no, um, as an amalgam of, of both previous commentators, because I think um, you'd assume that from, from uh, rapid expansion. But I also think there's been a huge emphasis on, on feedback, particularly uh, as that's a key factor in NSS and some of the other metrics. So I know that that's one of the areas that, that um, many universities work really hard upon. And the answer is no, not at all. There appears to be no relationship at all between how many more students are at a provider and how happy they are with feedback on assignments. That startled me too. I thought there'd be a correlation as well, but R squared is a dramatically bad 0.0003, so I guess not. I've only plotted points for institutions with student number HESA data for 14, 15 and 17, 18, and decent NSS data for 2018. And where that data doesn't exist, I haven't plotted it. And finally, Chris Leslie, a member of the new independent group made up of 11 MPs as of this recording, was asked about HE policy in one of his first interviews. When asked what he thought of the complete abolition of university tuition fees, he replied, sounds great. The minor problem is, how do you pay for it? Mark, could this be an early glimpse of a policy position of a newly formed political party? Yes, it might. Um, But I think what it also highlights is a a huge problem that the independent group has. on the one hand, they've got the Labour Party uh, promising to abolish fees, and I, th- I think they're going to be incredibly wary of um, really big spending policies. Uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if they create a kind of full, kind of manifesto-ready set of set of policies in, in the first place. Um, and how they square that with uh, attracting, I, I guess, a mass a mass movement. So tuition fees aren't very popular. 
um, abolishing them may not be the answer that you know the kind of the panacea that that some people think it might be. Um, just cutting them, um, as Ed Miliband promised at the at the 2015 general election, didn't really get anyone uh, any any more support or votes. Um, and if the if the Tories promised that this time round again, perhaps a cut to six or seven, um, it sort of looks like a bit of a uh, it looks like a bit of a cop out. It's, it's just not very inspiring. Just doesn't get doesn't get you much support. So so it's going. I think what this highlights is the fact that they're they're going to struggle to um, come up with a position that um, is actually going to appeal to people. Um, I think it should also be noted that that these are mostly kind of Labour moderates that have, that have left uh, the Labour Party, uh, unlikely to have supported the Corbyn um, free education pledge. Um, in, in the first place, so um, their natural instincts will be in favour of uh, probably some kind of tuition fee system in in, in some form, um, but they don't want to look like status quo, um, and they certainly can't afford to be um, making ten billion pounds spending promises um, this far away from uh, even forming as a political party. Um, and maybe they should read um, Nick Hillman's blog this week about uh, giving a sort of uh, background of different political positions on tuition fees and how it had impacted on um, elections. I think he found that uh, the parties that um, uh, brought in tuition fees tended to get elected um, and also showed how every single party had kind of flip-flopped to both sides of the debate. But I do think that there's a lot of traction in public consciousness that um, uh, reducing or removing tuition fees uh, tends to favour uh, richer people. Um, and uh, so I think it would be extraordinary if this independent group um, went for a free tuition fee policy, um, not least because it's unaffordable. But I think it, they may be um, influenced slightly by there's a lot of noise coming out of America now about the, I think it's $1.5 trillion of student debt that exists in the States now, which is crippling people. And very much um, a narrative about the idea of you've got to go to college to get your degree, to get on in life. And a real, like us, a real lack of opportunity for apprenticeships and other less non-academic um, routes to success. Um, and I think there will be some influence in that because um, it, even um, Forbes and other kind of prime commentators in the States are really starting to, to worry and, and be concerned about, about the impact of future talent, future generations. Um, and, and it does sadden me that, that we just have this lack of ambition for skills and talent and we're not funding it properly in schools, we're not funding it properly in universities and we're transferring the entire, yeah, sorry, and colleges and, and not, um, you know, we're just transferring the debt onto um, the, the newer generations who um... well, thankfully, thankfully, we don't have nearly as punitive system as, as the states and yeah. um, uh, people where where um, your credit rating is affected, where um, you will be hounded down for that for that money um, to the ends of the earth, where we we quite rightly write it off um, if you can't afford uh, to pay it back, and, and certainly don't take any money if you if you don't um, if you don't earn. But the um, I think what this, what I'm interested in, is the kind of political realignment going on, and where HE is going to fall in into that. So there's a number of different centrist groupings now. So we've we've had this first one come out of the woodwork of these these MPs leaving the Labour Party and the Tory Party, um, but you've got at least two or three other um, things rumbling on the background. So you've got the kind of Jonathan Powell, Philip Collins, these former Blairites setting up a political party, largely funded by J.K. Rowling. Um, which is meant to be launching this year. You've got the um, the guy who runs Love Film um, starting a, a centrist political party. 
Um, uh, and of course, you've got the the movement around the people's vote um, and FFS, um, uh, who obviously lobbying for um, a vote now, and you know the kind of hardcore Remain um, c- constituency, which is disenfranchised from both the Tory and the Labour Party at the moment, and where that kind of where that where they end up, you know, do they all fall into um, a new a new centrist party, or does a does a, one of the ma- major political parties kind of reform itself and? Uh, kind of bring them back in into the fold. Um, so, with politics in such flux, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how um, how these pieces get get moved around. And I, I wouldn't rule out uh, the Conservative Party having um, you know more radical positions on on tuition fees if it was seen in the uh, kind of the political calculation necessary to, to kind of win that win those bodies of support um, at, a, at a general election. So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find the links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thank you to the Duchess Mary and to Pete and to Mark, everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen. And until next week, stay independent. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.